You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Um, a couple of really quick announcements. Um, we got some stuff going on. You should check it out. RedemptionHOU.com forward slash today. Uh, Film Club continues this week. Um, we're going to have our conversation perhaps here um, this week, given the nature of the film we'll, we'll be discussing. Um, we do our caffeine club that meets on Thursdays at 11. We have opportunities for you to serve, opportunities for you to connect. You can find all that stuff out on the website, redemptionhou.com forward slash today. Um, I mention that because it's important, uh, but I mention it briefly because uh, today's just a little heavy. Right, this week alone, the COVID death toll officially surpassed one million human lives in the United States of America. And for the most part, life goes on and the majority of us remain fairly indifferent to that. Something's wrong. I saw that the Taliban ordered all of the female reporters in Afghanistan, demanded that they cover their faces. Something's broken. This week, an 18-year-old kid was indicted following his brutal act of racially charged terrorism on an African-American community going about their weekend grocery shopping. The world is broken. For 20 years, the body overseeing the Southern Baptist churches in the United States of America, the Southern Baptist Convention, enabled and empowered 20 years of sexual abuse by ignoring, silencing, threatening, and intimidating the abused in order to protect their churches and their pastors. Their 300-page investigation is being released today. Something is deadly wrong. We read headlines, and we can easily acknowledge, like, this is not the way things should be. And yet so much of us seize these things and they, they bounce off of us because they have to. Because if we allowed them to actually penetrate into our souls, how could we get out of bed in the morning? The Christian tradition has always maintained that this brokenness is the result of sin. In other words, this is not how things just are and it's certainly not how things are supposed to be. And yet so much of the rhetoric 
So much of the flippant language that we use around sin has us misunderstanding. Uh, That's not even the right word. Underestimating sin. Dismissing it as watching rated R movies or saying bad words or looking at things that are inappropriate. Right? Sure, maybe those things are good, bad, and different, but sin is certainly far more weightier, far more violent, far more destructive, and far more subtle than that. We dismiss, we misunderstand, and we underestimate sin. We tend to, right, and this is what we were handed, right? This is not me blaming you. I thought the same way. Most of us think the same way because it's just the world we're steeped in. But we tend to think of sin in terms of moral choices rather than ontological being. Okay, so that was definitely like a Zach word. Let me give you a Brandon phrase for that. We tend to think of sins as things that we do instead of what we have become. Sin is not just what we do. Sin has somehow made its way into us to the point that when the Christian church defines humanity in its current state, they define humanity as inherently sinful. Super encouraging sermon this morning, right? That is that after Genesis chapter 3, who we are, who humanity is, what it means to be human is now somehow intrinsically married to sin, marred by sin, marked by sin in some sort of way that we can't scrape it or scrub it or scratch it off. It is who we are now. It is a mark that we carry with us. This wasn't always the case. This is not the world of humanity in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. There it's very clear, God made us to be good, whole, flourishing, beautiful, life-giving beings who spend our entire lives delighting in God, delighting in the world, delighting in those around us. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to broaden this idea of sin for us. I want to probably give you some stuff that you've heard before, but I I want to paint a picture and hopefully reframe sin in a way that can encourage us. If you're willing to journey through the darkness with me this morning, I can assure you that when we get to the other side, the light of Christ will shine much more brightly. But we have to understand what Jesus is actually doing for us. So we'll start in the text that Christine read for us this morning. And I want to spend the second half then walking through, wait, so how should we think about sin giving this story that Genesis tells So Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? There's a number of creative ways that we can read this. I always tend to think the serpent's going, that's ridiculous. He's prohibiting you? Are you kidding me? You gonna do what that guy says? The woman said to the serpent, no, 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 we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you'll die. As we talk about sin, we we have to begin with God. 
right? In chapters one and two, God has created humanity in the garden in a place of flourishing. Literally in chapter two, when it says that God places humanity in the garden, the the language there is God rested humanity in the garden. It's the same word that we get the name Noah from later on in Genesis. uh, Noah's father names him Noah because maybe this one will bring us rest from the curse brought on us in chapter three. Humanity is rested in the garden to cultivate, to cause it to flourish. This is beautiful. It's delightful. It's life-giving. It's good. God has given peace and wholeness to humanity. And when God says, hey, eat from any tree but this one, what's happening here is that the heart of God's command is love. What we often don't see when we hear this story is the the remarkable compassion, grace, and love of God in Genesis chapter three. It's out of love that God commands humanity to eat freely out of any tree. Like, that's obvious. But it's also out of love that God commands humanity to abstain from eating of the one tree. But this is not like an arbitrary command. It's not like God said, you know what? I wanna pull a rule out of my rear end and see if you guys will actually follow it. So what God does, he says, hey, look, you can't eat from this tree because if you eat from this tree, the next thing that will happen to you is you will die. I don't want that for you. I love you. I don't want you to experience death. Don't eat it. Trust me on this. Don't eat it. Stick with me. Stay in life. Stay in wholeness. Stay in flourishing. Don't eat from the tree. Now, right, we can ask some questions. Why did God put the tree there in the first place? And did this literally historically happen? Or is this a big archetypal metaphor? Those are great questions. Let's get coffee and talk. I got 30 minutes. Also, by the way, side note, we don't know, right? Can we just, can we have the humility to say, I don't know, I have a few guesses. Some of them might be right. All of them might be wrong. Uh, They make sense, but we don't know. If Jesus can be raised from the dead, then certainly a snake can talk, right? That doesn't mean it had to happen, um, right? That we were to get a time machine, we could go back to a time and a place, right? A conversation we have offline. So, you just, so y'all, y'all drug me into it. Okay. <laughs> so the command is not arbitrary. It's not just a random rule that God pulls out of his rear end. The command is centered on the cosmic life or death of humanity, Hey, don't eat from this tree because when you do, you will die. This is a command of love. The warning is that to experience the fruit is to somehow experience death. Now, uh, well, we'll talk about this in a second. Verse four. No, you won't die. You kidding me? The serpent said to the woman, In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. What could go wrong? It looks good, tastes good. I'm gonna get something good out of it. So she took some of its fruit and she ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate it. 
she saw nothing wrong with this. Right? And I don't, again, right, we're speculating. I don't think that this was a magic tree. I don't think that this was somehow some sort of mysterious, mystical, evil tree. I think it was just a normal tree. And as soon as God put the command onto the tree, it somehow made eating from that tree somehow rebellion against God. Right? So it, it wasn't this tree or the fruit or anything about that. It was all that the tree represented. So she saw the fruit. It looked as good as all the other fruit. It's going to give her some wisdom according to the serpent. Uh, what could go wrong here? This seems like a good idea. Maybe God's wrong on this one. And in this moment, the serpent confronts humanity with a decision. And notice this. We had our... Um, sermon last week on some of the gender stuff in Genesis and in the scriptures. One of the things we can pile on with this, one of the things that we hear oftentimes is that um, this is all Eve's fault, <laughs> right? It's, it is the female's fault. But Adam is there, standing right next to her. This is a humanity issue. This is not a male-female we are all in this together, which is part of exactly what this story is trying to tell us. You and I are just as complicit as they are. And so in this moment, there is a shattering of what it means to be human. Right on a really basic, simple level, God created humans to obey and worship him. And in this moment, they choose to disobey and in that, not worship him. But it's way more than that. To deviate from what it means to be human is sin, right? Here's what I mean. If God created humanity to be good and beautiful and flourishing, and humanity then becomes something other than that, that becomes something other than good, something other than whole, something other than flourishing, like the definition, the word that the scriptures use over and over and over and over again to describe that transition from state of what we would say like shalom or peace or wholeness or righteousness, the scriptures use all types of words for it, to this state of being cursed, this state of death, this state of condemnation, this state of judgment, that move is sin. And it is the problem. Not the bad words you use when you stub your toe or just when you feel like it. We have somehow at the tree deviated from what it originally meant to be human. And at the core of what it means to be human is to be in relationship with God. So how did Abby, Adam and Eve fundamentally deviate from what it means to be human? They ate some fruit. No, 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 they didn't just eat some fruit. They said, God, we don't really need you. We're good. And they took that step away from God and in that moment became something entirely different than what God ever wanted them to be. And so the real, here, uh, the real issue here is not fruit, but fidelity. She doesn't believe God anymore. Hey, did God really say this? Uh, yeah, I mean, he said something like it. Huh, I think he's holding back. He doesn't want you to have this. He knows that if you have this, you'll become a better version of yourself. Oh, I better self-actualize, take some fruit, achieve the, the God in me. I don't know, whatever, whatever she was thinking in the moment. 
And in that moment, the exact opposite thing happens. In her moment of trying to find some sort of independence that will, will move her to a, a, a further uh, stage of enlightenment or evolution or whatever, she takes a million steps back and becomes this terrible version of herself. And humanity is now different. Adam and Eve's kids were different. They were built different. <laughs> How do we know? Right after chapter three, Genesis chapter four, the first story is Cain and Abel. The, the first other human beings that enter the story is the one dude that murders his brother because he loves God better than he does. I, I know how to solve this. I'll kill you. How do we know that something's gone drastically wrong? How do we know they're like, wait, no, are they really broken? Like maybe they can have some kids and they can undo it and they'll just make better decisions and everything will be fine. No, 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 no. We realize very quickly in the story that eating this fruit has done something to humanity that is major. Verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Isn't that a, like just put yourself in this scene for just a second. Right, and there's some ambiguity about, well, how should we actually translate this? Is it a thunderstorm or is it an evening breeze? Like, ah, right, let's just go with this translation. It's one of the reasons I picked it, I like it. The, the picture that's painted here is something that I think is really helpful for us to understand the relationship between Adam and Eve and God before this moment. God's taking an evening stroll. It's a nice breeze outside. He's going to visit his beloved creation and have communion with them. Spend some time with them, to hang out with them, to laugh with them, to enjoy the evening with them. What kind of world is that? where the creator God just sits on your porch, shoots the breeze. But they hid from God among the trees. Verse nine. So the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. Something drastic has changed. We go from walking in the evening breeze with God to being so terrified of him that we have to hide. So ashamed and exposed that we have to cover ourselves from our most intimate human relationship. Something has changed. And God was the same before the story. God's the same after the story. So it's not God. The God with whom they would enjoy cool walks has now become fearsome and terrible in their minds and in their hearts, and they have to hide from him. Their choice leads to the immediate death of their relationship with God and their relationship with one another. A wedge has been driven in their communion with each other and in their communion with God, and now it is breeding fear and suspicion and shame, and so they invent ways to cover themselves, to hide. 
And I hope if, if we hear anything this morning, I hope this part of our story can like resonate with us. Right, maybe we don't, like, ah, you ate some fruit and something changed, like, okay, I don't know. Maybe we've had those moments of decision. But more than that, I feel like maybe I'm projecting a little bit here. Um, I feel like I get up every day and I struggle with trying to make myself something that I'm not. And some days are good and I resist that temptation and some days are bad. Don't we make ourselves something that we're not? Don't we spend all times, all sorts of time and energy and money and on covering our real selves and projecting out into the world something else, whether that's what we want other people to see or what we think other people expect to see? Maybe we think we're not lovable and so we create a version of ourselves that'll be lovable. Maybe we're afraid if someone knew this real part of me that if I let them into that real part of me, they wouldn't actually accept that part of me. So we hide, we cover ourselves. We hide from God. We're afraid to actually be vulnerable and real and present with God. Maybe that's as simple as like we refuse to spend time in the presence of God. Maybe that's as simple as when we pray, it's weird, formal, distant prayer instead of authentic, robust, earthy, I don't know, sometimes explicit prayer. So this church values authenticity. It's from the very beginning, one of the, the core pieces of who we are has been like, look, if we're gonna be a, 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 a assembly of Christians who follow Jesus and wanted to like actually live and follow this way that Jesus has invited us into, we have to be real with each other. We can't pretend, we can't play religious games, we can't hide, we can't like do smoke screens. We have to be open and vulnerable. We call it sharing. You can see it out on the wall. Like we believe in it so much that we painted it on the wall. Actually, Mike painted it on the wall. He was like, this will be great. It'll take us like 30 minutes. And like six hours later, he was still here painting. <laughs> Communion requires vulnerability because it requires being known. You can't have communion if you're hiding. You can't. You can pretend. You can make everyone around you think you have it, but if you're hiding, you don't have it. Redemption Church has six core convictions. Our foundation is Jesus. It will always be Jesus. It is only and ever Jesus because if Jesus ain't it, what are we doing? But we also have two goals, right? So six convictions. One of them is our foundation, Jesus. Two of them are our goals. What is it that we're trying to do? It's really simple. We are trying to connect, right? Communion. We want to have connection and communion with God, our creator, our maker, our redeemer, our sustainer, the life in our lungs. And we want to share that with the people around us and live in communion with one another. And the other goal is redemption, we want to be changed. We, we recognize like something's broken, but like th- there's some hope here. There's some real avenue for change here. And we have three tools to do this, right? The tool of grace, that is God's work in us, the free gift that God does on our behalf. You can see all this on the website if you're like, oh, that's interesting. I want to learn more. The second tool is sharing. This is where I'm going with this. 
It's sharing. How do I achieve communion and redemption within the body of Redemption Church? You have to share your life. If you don't, we're just playing a game. And we become like all the other churches that we sit back and criticize. They look religious. They act religious. They put a smile on their face. They're like, hi, welcome. There's all kinds of junk going on that they don't want to share. Like, let's not ever, ever be that kind of place. But like, the only way we can ever be that type of place is we have to share. And sharing is scary because it requires vulnerability. Like you are exposing yourself in ways that are exposing you to real hurt and pain and ridicule and rejection and all the things that a lot of you have experienced in other places. So I get it. But if we want real communion, we have to share. We have to get to the place where we're willing to confess and be open and be vulnerable and be real and share the deepest, darkest, scariest parts of ourselves with one another. We'll never be able to find true connection if we're not honest about who we are. That requires us being honest with ourselves, but then taking the next step of turning around and being honest with those around us, those who love us and those who we love. To hide, to cover, to run away, like simply put, it's not what it means to be human. Part of what it means to be human is to share. Okay. I've sufficiently beat that into the ground. If you're not sharing this week, I don't know what to do. I don't know, I don't know how to help you. <laughs> Brad, I'm sort of kidding when I say that. Um, okay, so I, I have like a lot of people that I look up to on Twitter. They're like my fake friends. Um, they don't know I exist and they don't follow me back, but I follow them. And one of them, a wonderful human being, her name is Caitlin Cheese. Um, she went to DTS, which is a seminary that Zach and I both went to. Now she's at Duke Divinity, um, getting her Master's of Divinity. She wrote a book. She's really smart. And she shared something on Twitter that I was like, oh, that is so perfect. So she was sharing that she had recently, I don't know exactly why, but they had recently been gathering with um, some high schoolers. They wanted to have a, a theological conversation with a group of high schoolers about, I don't know, what does Gen Z think about God? Or what does Gen Z think God thinks about them? And they ask, what's the biggest question that you and your peers have about God? And they're, they're asking this in the spirit of like, is the Bible true? Um, did the flood really happen? Like apologetics type questions. How do you prove the existence of God? They're expecting that type of answer. And she shared that the first word out of a teenager's mouth, is God mad at me? Is God mad at me? I think when we read Genesis 3, I think a lot of us are going, is God, is God mad at me? Like, I'm, I'm broken in some profound ways. Like, yeah, maybe like ontologically, but also like practically, I could give you a list of things that I've done to wound and hurt the people around me. God's mad at me, Right? No. Um, I want to spend the rest of our time together answering that question, but I want to emphatically answer it up front. No, absolutely not. God is not mad at you. And I'll explain how I know that to be true, but no. Um, 
right? There are, there are a bunch of things about God that if we pretend to say, oh yeah, we know this about God for sure, we're, we're fooling ourselves. The more I encounter God, the more I learn about God, the more I commune with God, the more I realize, oh my gosh, you are vast and other and mysterious in ways that I don't even begin to comprehend. But there are a handful of things that I can really grab a hold of and sink my teeth into and like spit at you guys about. And one of them is this, our God is a God of love above all all of the rest. He is a God of love and a God of grace. And if you're reading the scriptures and coming to any other conclusion to that, I don't know what to tell you, you're reading the scriptures wrong. Well, what about God's judgment? I I know the scriptures talk about God's judgment, but abundantly more than judgment is grace. Paul even says this, where sin abounds, grace supersedes it over and over and over and over again. God is a God of love and grace, love and grace. No, God is not mad at you. But let me give you some actual like textual reasons or at least uh, like the story arch reasons as to why I know God is not mad at you. Right, we were created to be good. And by the way, so much of that goodness and beauty remains in us. We're not talking about that this morning because it's not the point and I've got like six minutes left. But, right, so we're not saying humans are sin, they're dirt, they're, right? We are this amalgamation of, we were meant to be these really beautiful, fantastic creatures and like we've somehow been marred and marked and we stray in some weird and destructive ways, but there's still like intrinsic goodness in us. There's still value in us. And we know that God is not mad at us because God's response to sin is not judgment. Well, what are you talking about? Read Exodus. I would say read Mark. God entered the sinful world. He lived among the, simple, uh, the sinful people He gave himself over to their sinful violence in order to free and shatter their sinful nature to remake sinful humanity. God's response to your sin is not judgment, it's the cross. God's response to your sin is for him to give himself on your behalf in love in order to remake and restore and resurrect you. So rethinking sin for just a moment, right? We were made good. Something broke, something fractured, something went off. Um, The way that I like to illustrate this, because sometimes we have... We can go like in the weeds and have some really crazy theological, right? Think about, I don't know, pick your dream car, whatever it is. It could be an old classic. It could be a modern day. It can be a car that doesn't exist, a flying car. I don't know. Pick a car. Now imagine that that car, whatever its value is, is sitting in some barn out in West Texas, and it's been there for a long time, and it's rusting and decaying. Is that car still the car? I mean, yeah, sort of, but it's not really able, it doesn't have the full capabilities that the original car had, but there's still some like inherent value because it's that thing 
but somehow like rust and decay and like time has like worn the car out in ways that are like, ah, uh, I, don't, I don't know. And then a restorer comes in and remakes the car and restores the car and makes the car, returns it back to its original beauty. Like, like this is the Christian depiction of sin and redemption. And so humanity was good. We were given goodness by the God who is good. We were given life by the God who is life. And the moment that that wedge, the moment we separated ourselves from that source of life and goodness happens, all sorts of darkness and evil and chaos like begins to enter the picture. In other words, like, right, if, if God is the fountainhead of life, to leave the fountainhead of life means you have left life. The definition of leaving life is death. Like this is a binary thing here. There's no like, you know, I really enjoy life, but I don't enjoy God. Like in the Christian understanding of who God is, that does not exist. To be in communion with God is to be in communion with life itself. To be in separation from God is to be in separation from life itself, which is the, why the moment they did that, they died. And death entered the world and chaos and disorder and all the things that God had combated in Genesis chapters one and two come flooding back into the universe. And yet in his mercy and in his compassion, God doesn't allow death to fully take over. Some of the early church fathers put it this way, to break communion with God was to break communion with being itself. And that humanity began to become non-being. They described this similar to the, the car illustration. They described this as like rot in a tree. The mark of goodness and life that was intrinsic to their nature was always dependent on their attachment to God. Humanity was meant to be in communion with God. That is what it means to be human. And when we turn away from the fountainhead of life to anything else, it can only ever corrupt us. Their children were just like them, and we are just like them. And so sin is as much who we are as it is what we do. So if our problem is what we have become, then our solution is we have to become something else. And this is where grace enters the picture, right? See, if, if I simply think that my sinning is me making some bad choices and I need to make better choices, then grace is, ah, God will forgive you for your bad choices and you can make better choices next time. But if sin is the profound fracturing of who you are as a human being, then grace has to be something more. One church father put it this way, one tree brings death to all of humanity, while the other tree, the cross, brings life to all humanity. If our problem is what we have become, the solution is we need to become something else. We need resurrection. When we think that sin is doing bad things or missteps, then grace is simply God excusing that so we can do better next time. But when sin is rot and decay that flowers into acts of hatred and racism and violence and all the gross stuff, then grace is far bigger. 
It becomes God doing for something, something in us that, that we can't do ourselves. It's God giving things to us that we could never give ourselves. See, we don't need more rules. We need to be brought back from the dead. We, we don't need like a new law or more religion or, right, more moral guidance. We need Jesus. We don't need to become nicer people. We need to be transformed. We need resurrection. I have some good news. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He didn't come to give you like an example. You can wear your WWJD brace bracelet. Sorry if you have one on. That's fine. Right? It's not a, it's not a way to shame you into like, well, you be, look at Jesus and how much he hates your sin. You better behave yourself. He has actually and really worked his way inside you in some sort of mystical and mysterious and powerful way by his spirit. And he is transforming you from the inside out. Is God mad at you? No. God loves you. God gave himself for you. God is remaking you. Even now, even in your dark moments, your rebellious moments, your doubt-filled moments, when you resist and you struggle, you are being remade. God is not mad at you. God is resurrecting you. Redemption, we are a resurrection people who are clinging to a resurrection God, begging him, hoping for, believing in resurrection. Father, we need you in profound ways. Our brokenness is way more broken than I think I realize and we realize and has just ripple effects and ramifications in ways that are like, I don't know, not obvious. There's a real fracturing that has happened. There's a real lack of wholeness that I think I experience on a regular basis. I think we experience on a regular basis. And what we need is we need you. We need you to pluck us from the grave. We need you to bring light to our darkness. We need you to save us. We need you to transform us. We need you to resurrect us. Jesus, will you convince each and every one of us this morning that you deeply love us, that you care about us, that you are actively, mystically working in us for our good and for our flourishing. You are really and actually bringing us to life. We believe this, we proclaim this, and we cling to this in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord and Savior, our Resurrector. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.